Welcome to this week's episode of the Layers of Design podcast. I'm your host, Ebehi. As always, thank you so much for tuning in. We really appreciate the support from all our listeners. This week, we have the pleasure of sharing a conversation with Marissa Courtright, who is a business development officer at UN Studio. Now, this episode is a bit different because Marissa is not a designer or an architect, but with degrees in architectural and urban history from the Bartlett School of Architecture and Bernard College, she's immersed in the world of architecture through business development. I enjoyed this conversation a lot because Marissa and I discuss a different side of architecture. I think it's important as designers and architects for us to be truly honest with the work we do and what our work and our profession as a whole represent. I first found Marissa through the article she wrote in 2019 called Death to the Calling, A Job in Architecture is Still a Job. This is a really eye-opening piece where she talks about the overlooked side of the profession. We'll be diving into this article in the episode, and I'll be leaving a link to the article in the episode notes, so be sure to check it out. In the meantime, enjoy, get inspired, and let's get real. Welcome, Marissa. Thank you so much for joining me and for agreeing to be a guest. I'm so glad we were able to connect. Thank you for having me. Of course. So I want to first start by asking you what got you into architecture and design? This is a tricky one since I don't consider myself fully in architecture and and design as such, in part because I am a historian by training and neither an architect nor a designer. So I don't feel I have a full claim to to those fields, let's say. And yet I work (laughs) in an architecture firm. And so I'm kind of right on the cusp. But right. So as I said, I, I trained as a historian. I studied urban history in college and urban here means more of, you know, things related to cities rather than urbanism or, you know, urban in the sense of the built environment. But as I was taking that that um, degree, my interests were moving towards the, the built environment and I ended up writing a kind of urban architectural history thesis at the end of it. And so I was moving towards architecture. And then once I graduated, I was working for a transportation consulting firm. So not what I would call architecture and design. Mm-hmm. And I and I thought after a few years, you know what, let me get some more of that architecture. <laughs> so then I, I went to graduate school um, at the Bartlett in London and studied architectural history. And I was like, yes, I'm going to get my, my fill now. Wow. And I was wrong. <laughs> we were looking more at the, the social conditions and, and the critical theory that, that produce kind of architecture as a field. And, and that's, that's very, let's say, contemporary in, in architecture right now. So yes, we did look at buildings, but it was mostly other stuff. So throughout all of that, I, I feel like I still haven't arrived, but I'm, I'm dipping in and out. 
in and uh, of of architecture. Oh wow! So from your experience and your education, how I guess how do you how do you feel like your experience can help improve the built environment? Yeah, I I think there have to be a lot more types of people working in you know these various industries that that produce the built environment. People with different kinds of training. People with especially liberal arts training like I've had and and I'll I'll I know it's biased but I'll say maybe especially historians mm-hmm. I, I think what I have to offer and and what expanding the field of people who are working in the build environment um, would have to offer to it is is simply another method of going about it and mm-hmm. and hopefully a method that is far more conscientious of well, everything we've done wrong in the past. <laughs> Not that history is so simple as to just kind of narrow it down to, well, what happened before, but to understand it and to carry forward its relevance into the present in a way that without a certain kind of training, you you just can't accomplish. And so I would really hope for, for many disciplines to be able to bring these different methods into the built environment. And I, I think it would be excellent for architects to be trained in different ways too, to mm-hmm. have to have a, a broader understanding of other disciplines and to be able to also have some humility <laughs> by interacting with them. <laughs> yes. Um, okay. <laughs> so I know we're laughing for a couple of reasons, especially because of some of our previous conversations, and we're definitely going to get into that. But it's interesting that you brought up, um, you know, the how you're involved in the built environment through other disciplines right and I think I think that's interesting because I feel like a lot of people I mean first of all most people don't really know what architects do and then people that are sort of seeking this path of architecture it seems like the education is almost streamlined like there's only really one path and one way to become an architect or to or to be involved in this world, you know? So I think that's, it's really interesting speaking to you and learning from other disciplines, like you said, because I mean, architecture is so much more than just, you know, constructing a building. And it's actually interesting during studying for my licensing exams, I came across this um, article that was talking about how 80% of buildings are actually done by contractors and have no involvement, no architecture, or no architect involvement and I was like seriously (laughs) I'm working so hard you know and I feel like I don't know what it is maybe it's because architects are not made aware exactly of so many situations around them and we're sort of um we have like a tunnel vision so yeah I, I think that's an interesting point that you just brought up Thanks. Yeah, I, I think we'll get into, you know, how does this actually play out, right? Like, how, how can we give some concrete examples of what it means to challenge the way that, that the architectural industry works now? What would it look like to bring those other disciplines in? Um, and, and where can we do that most effectively? Mm-hmm. Sure. I, I work in the part of the firm that looks at what new projects can we work on. And I see a lot of potential in that specific area of why are we doing any of this? You know, we really have to have a strong rationale 
for making the effort to, well, go after a museum or go after an office building for a certain corporate client or working in a certain country, right? There are so many questions that we have to ask ourselves and that we have not necessarily the skill nor the capacity to really judge the impact of what our involvement on that project might mean. And I think that that's where, where having people from different backgrounds could really bring some, some gravitas, right? That, <laughs> yeah. that the AIA, for instance, in the US has tried to, or there are people within the AIA who have said, we're not building prisons. And that seems pretty obvious at this point or, mm -hmm. or pretty non-controversial. But you take one step further and it starts to get really difficult to, to say, well, you know, should we, should we work on this project for that client? Because, well, maybe if we do it, then we can do it better than someone else. And someone's going to build it anyway. So we should just be the ones who do it. And so we also have to question whether that's, that's an approach that serves us well or that serves anyone well. And, and what agency architecture firms have in not doing certain kinds of projects. And so I, I think about these, these things a lot, just sitting in, in business development and trying to make decisions about, well, is this a project that's suited for us? Is this something that's worthwhile to go after? And, and not being happy with a lot of the things that come, that come forward. So, you know, I, I'm maybe not being too nice to architects but it's obviously a, a much broader problem that they don't get to choose the projects they do. There are certain kinds of projects that are out there and we need to think about what role do architects have in, in changing the projects that they're able to do. Okay. It's not the entire thing, but there's definitely something there. Yeah, and honestly, when you, you, know, when you talk about us choosing our projects, it, it becomes the whole question of, okay, you know, if you just want to, if you get started out, right, and you're just trying to snag that first client or just put your designs out there, put your work out there. And honestly, at the end of the day, you do need money, right? <laughs> we all survive, you know, on money. So if, if we're unable to, I guess, score a client because of, I, I want to say like our moral instincts, right? We're like, okay, we're not going to go with this particular client or we don't want to work in this country because of how we feel then what happens? Because obviously, like you said, someone else is going to take that project anyway. So then what happens to the people that are almost like left behind and are holding that strong moral ground? So I think it's a really tricky and complicated discussion because it's it, it runs deeper, right? Than just the surface level. So um, yeah, I, I haven't figured it out yet. I mean. <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> I was going to ask you about, and you've talked about it already, but about what you're doing right now, what your current role is. So can you just broad, like enlighten us some more? Sure. So the main thing that I do, as I just mentioned, is try to find new work. Uh, I'm involved in, in various other kind of what I will call overhead <laughs> or communications tasks within, within the firm that I work for. But but a lot of the work that I am doing is also, I think, along this, this push towards a moral position. Um, 
it's certainly not in my contract, <laughs> but I would say that that the police murder of, of George Floyd last year, as well as of Breonna Taylor, have have brought into even in Amsterdam the the global imperative of of architecture firms amongst everyone to to figure out where they stand and what they're willing to commit to with respect to Black Lives Matter. So that that isn't, as I said, my job, but it is what I feel tasked to do. And and maybe I'll say just a word on on how this comes to to architecture, because mm-hmm. there are a lot of people who are like, oh, okay, we can approach this as an employer and have our diversity scheme, da 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 da. And maybe we can come back to that in a second. But what I think would be important to talk about is what is what are architects' liabilities yeah. with respect to the ways in which they shape the built environment that perpetuate state-sanctioned racist violence against Black people in particular in the United States, but but globally as okay. well, um, including here in the Netherlands. And I think what what came out in the in the summer and in the fall were various reports uh, about the neighborhood in which Breonna Taylor lived, that that it was gentrifying in such a way that the police presence was very palpable and and the gentrification of that neighborhood made Breonna Taylor's home more susceptible to the possibility that she would that she would receive this no-knock warrant that ultimately ended in mm-hmm. in her murder. Uh, and and it sounds perhaps too complicated to unpack, but we know very well that architects contribute to gentrification, and so we can make this yeah. link, and we have to recognize. <laughs> the responsibility it places upon us as people who create that built environment and who produce, at least in part, that gentrification. And I think that that's not part of the discussion that architects have been having around Mm. Black Lives Matter since last summer. Mm. And I, I wish it were more in the forefront because of course I see value in changing the workplace to be more hospitable to Black people and people of color. However, if the projects that architecture firms are doing still contribute to these forms of violence, I, I don't see how that is a viable solution in the long term, or at least alone as a solution in the long term. Yeah. Because then, then you're you're creating a pretty nasty scenario. People work on projects that they that they have no moral um, connection to, mm-hmm. or no no sense that it's that it's supporting. And if anything, it's it's actually actively bad. <laughs> yeah, I I mean, this is I completely agree with you. Just thinking about, like you said how we, you know, how architects have a direct relationship, whether we like it or not, to everything that's going on in the built environment. It's tricky because you then we have to start thinking, 
how can we, okay, if even if a neighborhood needs development, how can we do this without risking the lives of people of color? Because that's what's going on, honestly, all around the world, really. And then to come back to your point of even within the office, I, you know, I want to touch on that a bit because like from your perspective, how do you think an office can avoid the idea of, um, not the idea, how can they avoid tokenism? You know, just hiring one black person because that's their diversity, you know, they're diverse all of a sudden. And then using that one black person for all the promotional material, <laughs> you know, without them really getting <laughs> any of the re rewards. I mean, it's unfortunate, but it, it happens, right? So from your perspective, how can that be avoided? I'm working, I'm trying to work towards that in my firm right now as we, as we conceive an effort that is not solely, but certainly inspired by a need to respond to Black Lives Matter, to, to show that we have, you know, quote unquote, listened and learned. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> No further comment on, on black squares <laughs> there. But to say that I I, I see it as, as a systemic change because it's it's not about representation, really. I the point that I made just just a moment ago about the projects needing to change, I find as actually the most the most important thing. That it's the hardest thing to do to say, wow, we're going to overhaul the way that we approach projects from here on out can sound like it's it's a pretty fundamental and threatening way to go about making a firm legitimately um yeah what's the word hospitable is not the one i want to use but but certainly less hostile mm -hmm. to to black architects and and other architects of color or should I say architectural workers, uh, <laughs> black, black architectural oh, workers and black archi and architectural workers of color. I'll come back to that term, it's quite a mouthful. But it's, I think it has to start with the projects because if you say, oh, come work for us and then you can work on this project that, that, you, that you find kind of morally reprehensible, I don't think that serves anyone. And mm -hmm. so one thing we've been talking about is how, how can we find bands of solidarity within the office to talk about the projects that we're doing and say, you know, if, if we want to do this project in a country that doesn't allow for, for gay people to have any rights whatsoever, and so you're not going to put a gay person on the project because they object to it, how do we have a solidarity block that says, I don't want anyone in the office to work on a project exactly. that's going to discriminate, you know, and, and potentially, um, be dangerous for a colleague of mine. So I, I think it has to start with organizing with your colleagues to, to make demands about where you draw the line. And I, I wouldn't want to prescribe a particular way to go about that for any given office, because I think there are different scenarios in different offices that maybe they have, you know, a, the greatest issue is how poorly people are paid. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> And so that's that's the primary thing to organize around, even yeah. if the projects aren't, you know, quote unquote, so bad. So I, I think it's finding finding common issues as workers within the firm that that need improvement.
for all workers. Like it needs to be a good place to work. Um, I, I, I find it very slapdash to say, we're gonna change nothing but hire more black people. Who does that benefit? That's the, I, I, I mean, it just doesn't, it doesn't recognize how deep seated the issues and the anti-black racism are in the firm, if that's the answer. And that's why I think it, it has to be as broad as looking at how you approach projects, as broad as looking at, at how do we pay people you know, and many, many more issues beyond that. It's, it's a full scale. Yeah. It's a full scale uh, <laughs> revisiting of, of how an Hey everyone. Works. Hope you're enjoying the episode so far. Just a quick reminder that our design X community event is live. This is a community event where designers create and discuss solutions for problems or issues within the community. It's going to be a three-part event filled with conversation, designs, solutions, and giving back to the community. So head over to layersofdesign.online for all the info. You can participate in the design competition, become a volunteer, make a donation towards our thoughtful kits, or become a sponsor. Well, let's get back to the episode. I don't think it can be anything less than that. The the moment calls for it. The moment calls for it also in light of in light of COVID and the intersection of um, the the recession we're having mm-hmm. with this you know so called reckoning on race. Um, they're they're so deeply interlinked. Perhaps more in the U.S. than than here, but but just the same. I. I I think we'd be remiss to try to single this out as a representational issue when it's precisely the moment that we should be looking at everything mm. and and connecting across many many lines. Definitely. And and honestly, it takes time, right? It's going to take time and it's going to hurt a lot, but I think it's it's important that everyone really looks into themselves and their practices and just to honestly just be better. <laughs> We're supposed to be protecting the public safety you know and it's just is everybody needs to be better (laughs) so I want to go back to your career experience what have been some defining moments in your career yeah I I would like to say again that that my training as a historian I think has influenced the way I think about what those defining moments are uh, in that, you know, the work of the historian is in some way to tell stories. And I also <laughs> see that my, my work has been often writing and, and communicating on behalf of professional bodies. So when I was working in New York at this transportation consulting firm, I worked on the kind of memoir slash layperson's history of transportation in the U.S. on behalf of my boss, which was very fascinating to see how do you write a book, <laughs> but also but also very much um, a balancing act of how do you work to tell someone else's story while also not, not letting yourself down by, by um, not chiming in where you see appropriate, especially on this part of it that was, okay, 
coming up to the present day in transportation in the United States, like where do we need to go from here? I have some strong opinions about that. And when we were working on this in 2014 and 2015, discussion around equity and in particular racial equity in transportation in the US was not as strong as it is today. And in part, I'm sure that was because it was a relatively white workplace, but but I know that it's it's a different landscape today, even amongst white people working in transportation in the US. So what I was trying to push for then and what was kind of allowed within the, you know, the voice of my boss are two different things. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think of that as, as one of these challenges of how do you stay involved in projects that you think are interesting in terms of, you know, professional development, it was a great opportunity, but in terms of a, a intellectual effort I found myself I found myself struggling and I I think that that's pretty much the through line through my careers you know how do you how do you end up working on something that is you know technically or formally interesting but maybe doesn't jive with your with your intellectual interests I'm I'm trying to use a euphemism here (laughs) no I another instance I'll give you is I, I gave a lecture last fall about the, the contemporary residential architecture of my employer um, to a group of students. Mm-hmm. I was putting together the slides and saying, oh, like, should I just give this lecture in my kind of work voice, you know, that I've repeated many, many times to other groups of students and just kind of sell the projects as the, as the firm would sell the projects. And I said, well, that's kind of boring, but then I, I also can't I can't come out and, and say something negative because I'm also representing my employer. It's it's mm-hmm. important that I that I maintain professionalism. I do think that's that's valuable. And so it, it's it's a challenge of how do you find the angle that is representative of, of yourself whilst carrying out the in some ways ideological project of, mm-hmm. of your employer. Um, you know, coming up to the present day in housing, I couldn't help myself but to say, housing is a commodity. And if we <laughs> want to talk about the future of housing, we need to talk about how how great a uh, challenge that this, this scenario represents for us. What does it mean to design housing that's an investment instrument? You can't pretend like you're producing housing for people because you're not. And so what is then our role as architects in changing the way that that housing is provided yeah. to people? So, of course, I threw that in. That was my own kind of spice on top to. of the projects. <laughs> <laughs> OK, so now speaking on writing, I'm glad you brought that up because this is I want us to talk about the article that I guess that made me find you, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> so the article is death to the calling a job in architecture is still a job. Now I found this article during one of my deep dives, right? A day where I was frustrated with architecture and just like, why are we doing this? I just feel like everyone is lying about what this profession really is, you know, like, it was all magic and glitters in school in the sem- in the sense of we're designing and, you know, they boosted our confidence. Like you can get through architecture school, you can do anything, you're going to be the best designer. 
And then getting out of school is a completely different experience, right? You went, if, if we all really think about it and if we're all really honest, we're literally just doing the same thing over and over again, right? And it doesn't have that spark, at least for many people. Of course, people, there are people that have been lucky enough to get that spark right off, you know, right out of school. But a lot of people haven't felt that spark in architecture and it leads to people leaving the career or doing something else with your with the education, which is completely okay. But I love this article because the article was so real. And it literally, I guess at, at the time, and it still does, you know, it's, it just spoke to me in a different, in like an honest way, right? Like, this is true. This is what architecture is like. Let's all stop pretending we are workers. Like that's who we are. So I want us to talk more about that article and what prompted you to write in it. Sure. Thank you. <laughs> um, I conceived of this article on a day when, like you, I was very frustrated <laughs> and I carried forward that frustration for several weeks in, in writing it. And I, I see now looking back on it that I crammed a lot in there. There's there's a lot to choose from in terms of what complaints I had at the time. <laughs> and I think they, they still all, all hold true. I do think there is this problem, particularly in architecture firms of a certain size that, mm -hmm. that need more than, than just design staff in order to facilitate their operation. So there are people like me who work in business development, communications more broadly. There are people who do PR. There are people who do project control to make sure that invoices are paid. Mm -hmm. There are people who run the front office. There are many IT staff. There are videographers. There are personal assistants. There may be more in, in other offices mm -hmm. uh, that I'm not thinking of. I mean, some people have legal staff on, on hand. So what I was trying to think about from my own perspective as a person who is not an architect working in an architecture firm is, is a sense of alienation I had mm. from this calling of you are a special person to be an architect. <laughs> you are a creative person. You are so meaningful in your work. <laughs> And I don't want to disabuse architects of the enjoyment that they mm -hmm. that they do find in their work. I I don't think that work is solely drudgery, but I think it's deeply it's it's probably more hurtful for architects than it is even for non-architects to uphold this myth. I I think it I think it is deeply damaging to your psyche yep. to commit to this calling and to convince yourself that it is so important that you do this work, then only to realize, as you said, that it is incredibly dull and you do the same thing all the time. And for what? For how yeah, much money? Exactly. For no sleep? To live, to live a pretty terrible lifestyle mm -hmm. and to do what kinds of projects? And it's, it's hard for me too. I don't, I don't like any of that either. I don't suffer from it in the same way that architects do. And I also haven't fallen prey to the idea that my job is so important to be a calling. 
because I recognize it as a job. And so the, the, perp the main purpose of the article that you see in the title is, let's get rid of this calling. It's not that you have to hate your job, but maybe you'll learn something if you realize that you have a job and that it is a job and that you, you don't owe your employer as much as you think you do, right? There, there's a statistic that I cite in the article or it's a, a study finding rather that passionate workers are, are more likely than non-passionate workers to do kind of meaningless work outside of their work hours. So yeah, you're not getting anything out of that. You, you might have convinced yourself that it will, you know, show your loyalty to the company or better position you for a raise or a promotion, but there's no reason to think that any of the, the drudgery is going away unless, of course, you organize as workers. <laughs> so that's where I end the article of reflecting a little bit on the efforts of the architecture lobby in the US and the section of architectural workers, which are is part of the uh, United Voices of the World Union in the UK. And, and they're both making efforts to unionize architectural workers in the US and the UK. I'm now currently on the look for what's going on in Europe uh, to see, you know, where, where can we find some solidarity with what are the, with, with those efforts that are, that are ongoing. And also where are the differences? I mean, like I was saying a bit earlier on, I, I do think different firms have slightly different issues depending on, the you know, side. is it the pay that's really bad? Is it the harassment that's really bad? Is it that the projects are particularly terrible? There's maybe one thing that stands out more than others, but of course we're all we're all working and, and then have some common ground there to draw from. So aside from the many, you know, small things that I, I um, call out in the article that I'm frustrated with. Yeah, the, the main thing is let's all let's all kind of get rid of this this calling idea and and reach out to each other as as workers. Yes. And I mean I it's it's a great article. I really do think architecture students and architects, honest young architects, older architects, the whole profession honestly should read art, this article because it's it's definitely a food for thought, right? And it's it's a rude awakening, pretty much, right? So again, it's it's death to the calling. A job in architecture is still a job. So please check it out. I'm going to link it um, in the episode description. So. Um, what is one key advice that you would give young designers and architects just starting out their career? Ooh, as I said before, I am not a designer or an architect. But I know, but like I, from I would your try to I would try to keep some perspective. Uh huh. To really understand that the skills that you're going to learn, both in your education and in your early years working in a firm, do not compel you to spend your entire life working in the kind of private practice world of architecture. You are far more capable than you might realize based on, Vecchi, as you were saying before, the narrow mm -hmm. nature of the architectural education in a lot of places. So with that, I guess my advice is to keep your options open. 
And I'm sure you can speak to that as well oh, based on your career path. But but Definitely. to not to not feel as though you you're giving up if yeah. you if you decide oh, that this is not for you. Mm-hmm. That your training will make you a good person to do a lot of things. And it's it's not that you've you've wasted the time. I mean, hopefully it's not been a time that's been terribly unhealthy mentally and physically although of course that's the case for a lot of people Mm -hmm. and I guess I would also look out for those warning signs of oh I'm terribly unhappy but then you know kind of monitor yourself for whether this is really for you and I'm not trying to scare anyone out of it but maybe that is also of that's also a call of you find yourself a place in in architecture that you feel healthy in and that actually has some capacity for you to work as you would like on on either design projects or writing projects or curatorial whatever it is um, that that gives you that gives you the space that you need to actually enjoy it because the article is not you shouldn't enjoy working in architecture it's you should recognize why it's not enjoyable to work Mm -hmm. in architecture and we should be trying to find another way to work in architecture. I mean, maybe we need to completely overhaul what we're even saying when we say architecture. But I think that's the challenge. It's this kind of meta thing of we're not just doing it, we're we're rethinking the way that we're doing it. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, you if, I I love the advice because from like last year, honestly, it, it was one of the turning points in my career where I had to be really honest with myself and be and, you know, and really spell out what architecture actually meant to me. And it, it did take it, it took a, a couple of months and I feel like I'm still getting through it. Right. Just to restructure my brain that architecture, there's so much more to just being to just, you know, doing the same thing or doing exactly um, what people say architects are supposed to do. There's so much more. And when I look at my skills and start diversifying it, I realize I'm good at so many things. Like I'm a creative person, right? And just remembering that is like, that's actually why I got into architecture because of the creativity aspect. So I've literally given myself permission to just explore different, you know, different sides of my creative, I guess, mind (laughs) of my creative mind and just learn and just keep learning how to be creative and using all of the skills that I've learned in architecture. And honestly, it's a lot better. And again, with the whole mental, making sure that the profession doesn't have a negative mental toll on you, that's really important because that goes a long way. It really does. And it's hard to, I guess, identify it a lot of times because we go through this, you know, school is, is tough right? And from critics where some critics were really, really harsh. So we're already preconditioned to harsh environments. We're already preconditioned to this is the way it is. Literally some complaints are just, well, this is the way architecture is. No, it doesn't have to be that way. Architecture, you, it doesn't have to be insufferable. It's such a beautiful profession. And that's why I love the article because it's not saying it's not about, oh, architecture is a bad profession. That's not what it's about. It's that there's so much more to architecture than what everyone is so like hung up on. 
So I think it's a really great conversation starter. And I think especially this new year, I hope people <laughs> are thinking of so many other ways to express themselves creatively. Absolutely. Can I add just to one thing of what you just said? Of course. I, I think you're exactly right to to say, how can we look at the at the profession in an optimistic way? Mm-hmm. It's not all doom and gloom because the the motivating thing is not, oh, let's focus on how how bad things are, although that does motivate me because I don't like to see people suffer. <laughs> um, <laughs> but but in in galvanizing our colleagues to care about those bad things, we also need to be working together on on our vision for what the profession should be looking like. Mm-hmm. What is what is an architecture field that we would be proud to be part of? What is an architectural education that we would be delighted to have completed and and better for it? What can we imagine to be completely different in the way that we produce projects so that they're better for the people that use them? And I don't mean that in 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 a kind of cheap way, but in in the sense that unless we transform the conditions in which we produce architecture, we can't really make any kind of transformational architecture. So, so there's a lot at stake here and, and it's both a, a opportunity and, and huge challenge to take up that effort. But I, I think that's what should be driving us forward, that, that, that vision of what we could be doing mm-hmm. that we simply don't have the, the access to right now. Definitely. Well, this has been an amazing conversation and I'm just so glad we connected and we're able to have this conversation because I think, you know, I think we're, we think pretty similarly in the profession and where it's, we feel like it should be going. So I just want to thank you again for your time and for being a guest this year. Thank you for having me. This was fun.